Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia, Middle East Forum, Century Radio. It's been an exciting week in the Middle East where we have just had a monumental escalation in tensions between the United States and Iran. But before that, I did have the opportunity to spend the last week in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv in Israel. And I was also able to find myself speaking to the highest levels of the government in that country, being able to try to get a better understanding of what's happening over there. First, let's go to our news updates. In Sudan, the main protest group, which has overthrown the dictator who had ruled there for a good 30, 40 years, has set a general strike after talks with the country's military rulers stalled on who will lead an agreed three-year transition. Protesters are demanding that civilians head a new sovereign council, which is meant to oversee a transition towards democracy. The Sudanese Professionals Association said the army was still insisting on directing the transition and keeping a military majority on the council. It was quoted in a statement as saying, Civilian power means that the structure is fully civilian and a civilian majority in all of its parts, the SPA had said. In order to achieve a full victory, we're calling for a huge participation in a general political strike. Arguably, Sudan and Algeria are the last two countries to have been wrapped up in this decade-long Arab Spring, or some other individuals call an Arab Winter. What started in Tunisia with a man burning himself alive after a fruit vendor had his prices escalated by a general tax increase by the government, we saw other dominoes fall. From Egypt, the Syrian civil war, which lasted for seven years and is still raging in the Idlib province right now. Other regimes not being affected so much by what's been going on in terms of the Saudis, the Moroccans, the Bahrainis to a certain extent, the Kuwaitis, all not having been affected by this general strike or by this general strife. But what we do see in Sudan is an element where a government that was ruled by a mix of majority military rule backed by Islamist political parties found itself in a situation where finally the professional middle class said that they had had enough. But a statement that was made by the interim leader who rules that majority council, which is now still has the military on it, but Omar al-Bashir is not there, the, the Sudanese dictator, who's actually now being tried on murder tra- charges, still wanted to implement Sharia law or Islamist-controlled political doctrine. I think that finally the professionals have had enough. Now if Sudan spirals into a civil war, it's second in 20 years after the south of the country separated itself in a plebiscite and started itself as South Sudan, we will not know what will happen until this strike is over and God forbid if there goes into a military rule with another massacre going on in the likes of a Darfur-level genocide. Now in Algeria, the situation is a little bit more calm. We find ourselves also seeing the military removing the former president of that country, Abdullah Patifa, my, my associate Gary will fix me on my uh, intonation and my pronunciation. We'll introduce Gary in a little bit. But in Algeria, there are more Western interests that are at stake versus what we have in Sudan. First and foremost, the French influence of the country, which didn't wane when Algeria got independence in 1960, but oil interests. And Algeria itself has been a rather stable country since the end of its own civil war at the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s, where we saw five terms from this president who has just been deposed, now replaced by a military junta that's also having civilians call for free and fair elections and the imposition of democracy. But the different political strands that are of the Algerian nature very, very much are different from that in Sudan. Algeria is looking more towards civilian rule. Think Tunisia. 
Sudan has just replaced one military leader with another. Now, in other news, we also find ourselves looking at Iraq. Iraq right now is still trying to implement an agreement that was uh, forged in May of last year during the Iraqi parliamentary parliamentary elections when Muqtada al-Sadr, running on an anti-Iranian and anti-American ticket, took first place in the parliamentary elections. There was a meeting that allegedly took place some two weeks ago when Qasem al-Salamani, the head of the Al-Quds force, which is the overseas arm of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran, gathered all Shia militias, which were under his tutelage, his sponsorship, and patronage in Baghdad. The reason for this meeting, which has been reported, is because they were trying to coordinate a strategy to basically put more pressure on the American presence in Iraq and act as a proxy force if America had an intent to strike Iran or, on the other hand, if the Iranians were starting to act out, if we will, against American forces in Iraq because of the new imposition of oil sanctions, which have no longer allowed waivers to countries that were previously exporting Iranian oil under the allowance that President Donald Trump gave in November of last year. The presence of Salmani, though, was not just for coordinating action against the United States. He also was trying to find political unison with the number two party, which was able to achieve victory in the Iraqi parliamentary elections, that of the Supreme Council for the Revolution in Iraq, and also many other militias that have their political arms in the Iraqi parliament and find themselves in a position of not being anti-American, of of actually being anti-American but not anti-Iranian. So you have these three or four unique political forces in Iraq right now that are stuck in this mire in this larger game of Iranian and American discontent in the region or friction in the region. You have the anti-Iranian, anti-American force that won number one in the parliamentary elections, Sadr. You have the pro-Iranian, anti-American force that was able to win number two. You have the Sunni-Shia unison bloc that won number three, and the Kurds coming in fourth place. So one of the things that I hope that we'll be able to discuss today a little bit later is what does it mean to have four different sides of the Iraqi political gambit in the middle of this heightened tension between the United States and Iran. In other news, we also have a new breakout of violence in Syria. At least 300 civilians have been arrested in Dara province and 11 civilians serving on local councils and former fighters having been killed or attacked since the government retook the area. The report by the United Nations Human Rights Office said that the 11 cases included drive-by shootings and attempted murders, but it was not in a position to identify any of the perpetrators as it no longer has a presence in Syria, relying only on in-country humanitarian organizations. In Turkey, their trade ministry has said that they will implement a reciprocal reduction in tariffs on U.S. imports after the United States halved tariffs on Turkish steel imports last week. If we remember, there was an increase in aluminum and steel tariffs that took place in June of last year in response to the Turks holding American pastor Andrew Parsons. We also find ourselves seeing a a certain amount of uh, not necessarily hesitancy on the Turkish part to manage their economy, but where President Recep Tayyip Erdogan from 2002 when he was elected as prime minister until about 2011-2012 was seeing GDP growth in that country on the levels of Chinese-level production. We also found ourselves in a situation where the Turks started putting their political agenda before the health of the Turkish economy. Now that there's a scaling back in tariffs on what the Turks put on American steel and the Americans having halved their tariffs on Turkish steel, this might allow a certain amount of breathing room 
for the Turkish economy to not contract as much as it has been in the last year. Beyond that, we also had a statement from the White House saying that they were terminating Turkey's eligibility for the Generalized System of Preferences program in a move Turkey said contradicted trade goals, but also having these tariffs. The sources also said that the reciprocal reduction will have tariffs on U.S. imports, including passenger cars, alcoholic drinks, tobacco, cosmetics, and PVC piping. The lower tariffs will take an effect with the presidential decree this week. Moving over to Iran, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani said Tuesday that the situation between his nation and the United States is not suitable for diplomacy, apparently shooting down the prospects of any negotiations with the Trump administration. Even as tensions between the two nations escalated in recent weeks, President Trump has hinted that negotiations with Tehran could be possible. On Monday, Trump told reporters that he would certainly negotiate with Iran if they called, but Rouhani said resistance in this country's only option for dealing with the punishing sanctions imposed by Washington led him to believe that today's situation is not suitable for talks and our choice is resistance only. More saber-rattling from Tehran. After these messages, we'll be joined by Gary Gamble, the editor of Middle East Forum Online, and A.J. Cachetta, one of our fellows up in Rochester, New York. We'll be back after these messages. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio. I'm Greg Roman, and I'm joined by our guest, Gary Gamble. Gary is a Philadelphia-based policy analyst specializing in the Arab world and the web editor for Middle East Forum Online. He's also a former editor of the Middle East Intelligence Bulletin and Mideast Monitor, a regular contributor to Foreign Policy, the National Interest, and the National Post. Gary's been with our organization on and off for over 20 years, and we find ourselves having the pleasure of welcoming him to the program for the first time. Gary, good morning. Good morning. So when you uh, find yourself in a 20-year-plus career focusing on the Middle East, and you see all of a sudden that the Middle East is back in the news at the top of the agenda, what advice would you give to media pundits in terms of their uh, prognostication and their punditry and their opinions that they're giving on a subject 
this case, the Iranian-American tension which has been rising in the region, that we find ourselves actually recycling 40 years of conflict and tension. What's different about this uh, heightened heightened period of tensions versus others in the past? Um, As far as what I would tell... uh journalists and, and media who are dealing with the Middle East today, I, I, would, I would say to be humble because most of the assumptions, uh, conventional wisdom that tends to prevail at any given time uh, is usually flawed. Um, at the end of the day, most of us outside the Middle East don't really understand the region. We're, we're always operating uh, under a basis of assumptions that, that, we, that we draw from observing the, uh, observing the region. I mean, I find right now, that it's very easy for someone to say they understand what Sunnis are, what Shia are, what Kurds are, um, you know, that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been going on for 100 years and it'll go on for another 100 years. But what do you think are some of the unique attributions of this recent rise in tensions that differentiate it from other recent spats between the United States and Iran? Uh, specifically the Iran conflict? Well, in, in this case, I think the the tensions that we're seeing are really a result of Iran being squeezed economically. Uh, the Trump's maximum pressure sanctions are working by and large. And the reason they're working is, is the United States has been very successful uh, in intimidating companies around the world, especially Europe, um, almost across the board, uh, intimidating countries into uh, abiding by the sanctions, which, which their own country's laws don't require them to do. Um, the Obama administration had had very much the same sanctions regime in place, but was much less successful at, at bringing about compliance with the sanctions. So I'm looking at a report right now from CNBC, which shows us that Iran's recession is driving a growth slowdown among the region's oil exporters. One of the things that we don't often realize is, is that when American sanctions target uh, Iran's hydrocarbon resources and their ability to export all of this oil that they have goes down, there's a need for other countries in the region to up their exports to be able to offset the global market so there's not a drastic increase in prices. What are the effects that the sanctions against Iran are having, not just on that country, but on the region itself? I mean, have we seen uh, the Saudis pumping out more oil? Do we see the Russians doing so? Is U.S. capacity going up? And, and if so, is this actually an economic benefit to them, or is it, as this report says, leading towards recession? Well, the, the Saudis a day or two uh, issued a statement suggesting that they, they uh, were opposed to further production increases. So they, they may have reached uh, the limit of what they're willing to do. But the fact is that the price of oil hasn't gone through the roof, despite, um, I think we're right now at about 60% of Iranian production having been taken offline, with the announcement that there will be no more waivers um, which are allowances we, we give to uh, petroleum importing countries not to have to comply with the sanctions immediately. Um, with the removal of waivers, that's going to bring it to zero, essentially. So we find a country which has exported, when there were no sanctions, some 3 million barrels a day. I think that the last statistics were showing that they're at about a million barrels right now, and the right. intent of the American sanctions is to get them down to maybe around half a million. The, actually, the comparison I would draw is not between what they were exporting when there were no sanctions, but what they were exporting when there were sanctions previously. Again, the Obama administration, because it issued waivers, reduced Iranian oil production to about 40%, which was more or less the intent of the Obama administration. They didn't want to bring it to zero because they they thought that would alienate the Iranians and disrupt 
uh, negotiations for the nuclear deal. So, so the Obama administration reduced petroleum exports to 40% because that's the target they were shooting for. The Trump administration is shooting for zero. And frankly, we don't even know what that means because <laughs> Iranian production has never been to zero. Right. So, I mean, Iran itself relies mainly, I'd say, for about 60 or 70% of their foreign currency coming from the purchase of their petroleum assets. But something else happened a few weeks ago when the Iranians, in response to the waivers for other countries not being able to import their oil anymore, decided to increase their low uranium enrichment by a scale of four. They quadrupled what they were looking at doing. The U.S. quickly, a day later, came back and said, you know what? We're not going to just sanction your oil economy or, or your oil exports. We're also going to start targeting your mining operations. We're going to be looking at your raw materials. So it seems as if, though, this is not just a, a, a vertical uh, sanctions regime, which is targeting only the export of oil. But like you said beforehand, there's a campaign of maximum restraint and maximum impact that Trump has decided to adopt. It's not the 40% number that you put. It's the 0% number. Now, this means that the Iranian economy will be starved of a key, uh, I don't want to call it a lifeline, but a key source of foreign, foreign currency. A few things happen when this is the effect on the economy itself. Number one, hyperinflation of the Iranian real is going to skyrocket. It's something at like 27,000% of where it was maybe six years ago. We've seen it actually projected to be 50 or 60,000. So basically, you're going to be having paper money or monopoly money, which is going to be used in terms of what the Iranians are using for their internal currency. But beyond that, does one hope that choking the economy off will cause internal dissent against the rulers in Tehran and the mullahs in Qom? Or will the opposite effect have? Will there be a certain amount of Iranian uh, citizenry having solidarity with the regime saying, this is the impact of the West trying to dictate us to us what to do, and we're going to stand strong with our, with our leadership? Or will there be a third option where they'll be able to find ways to the black market to offset their loss of foreign um, income and foreign currency? And in doing so, they'll also start using their proxies to act out against American interests in the region and around the rest of the world. Well, I think we can rule out them beating the sanctions because the other aspect of the sanctions, uh, Trump's maximum pressure sanctions that, that have exceeded all expectations, is uh, the administration's success in cutting Iran off from the international banking system, uh, especially the there's a system called SWIFT, which every every uh, most major companies use in order to transfer uh, money to each other. Iran's been cut off from that completely. And so if you eliminate oil exports and you eliminate Iran's ability to work within the international uh, financial system, you don't really have to worry about, uh, you know, prohibiting exports of, of, of Iranian minerals or, or Iranian dates or anything else. Because if you can't bank and they have no money from petroleum exports, uh, their economy is going to tank. Now, what now what happens when that happens, I think, is a, is a more interesting question. We, we can rule out that they're going to manage to uh, survive the sanctions uh, intact. Whether the Iranians will throw in the towel and sign a better uh, nuclear agreement with the Trump administration, which is certainly what President Trump is hoping will happen, I think that's un unlikely. Um, I think what's, what's more likely is we'll have a continuation of the status quo where Iran is, is uh, making trouble and is, is you know, opposed to U.S. interest in the region, uh, but their ability to 
uh, undermine U.S. interests is going to be dra- drastically reduced. We've, we've already heard about uh, Iranian funding of Hezbollah in Lebanon being cut, um, which has, I think, less to do with their the petroleum sanctions than with the, the in, in, inability to deal with Lebanese banks and, and transfer funds that way. Um, so I think, I, I think there, there's more to be done in terms of squeezing Iran financially. I don't think we're going to see a change of heart by the regime, but we'll see a weakened regime. And, and if you can't change the regime, you can't change the regime's heart, then you have to cut off its finance and cut off its ability uh, to make trouble around the region. And that, that's where we're at, I think. So if we look at the difference in the Iranian uprising that took place in December of 2018 – versus that which took place during the Green Revolution of June 2009. The 2009 Green Revolution was about political uh, discontent with the results of the re-election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And you had students and Iranian intellectuals and politicians all leading protests in the major Iranian metropolitan city centers, whether it was the University of Tehran, Shiraz, Isfahan, wherever else. But what I found unique about the disturbances that took place some, I guess it was a year and a half ago now, and also a, a re-escalation of this in December of this year, was that the revolt or the civil disobedience campaign, whatever we want to call it, took place in Mashhad, which is a largely blue-collar, low-income class city in the northeast of the country. And it quickly spread through the countryside rather than being in the city centers. Now, there were some protests there, too. But this was a nationwide protest against the way in which the Iranian regime was handling its own economy. It was uh, uh, reported that there was floods that had taken place over the last few months, and we saw protests against that. We saw the removal of the, uh, of the hijab, which was another campaign. But now that there's a combination of even greater economic isolation on behalf of the U.S. targeting both the oil industry, oil exports, and also the international access to the international financial system and banking system, what kind of reaction can we expect from just the Iranian uh, everyday Joe, everyday worker? My, my guess is that we're, what we're going to see well, – okay, let me back up and, and explain that the difference between the protests that, that erupted in December – of last year and, and have continued intermittently uh, since then. Um, and the, the 2009 protests, well, first of all, the 2009 protests were much bigger, but that's because everybody had a single event to coordinate on, which was an electoral result that was clearly fraudulent. Now, now there, there's, no, there, there's no clear instigating factor other than economic malaise. And so we see protests erupting spontaneously from labor unions, from uh, uh, student organizations. You, you see, you see videos online of, of, you know, the religious police in Iran arresting someone for not wearing her hijab properly and being accosted by ordinary people on the streets. Uh, you know, shouting, shouting slurs at them. So I, I, I think we, we've we've been seeing signs of of, of spontaneous um, ad hoc demonstrations. Um, happening because of uh, deteriorating economic conditions. I think economic conditions are going to continue to deteriorate. There's certainly no there, – there's no hope on the horizon for Iran right now economically, which is also very different. You know, the first time – when the sanctions hit their peak the first time, uh, which was, you know, 2011, 2012, there were negotiations going on. Iranians could say, well, you know, this, this is awful, but 
boy, you know, there are talks going on and, and we can hope for the best and maybe a year from now the, the, the sanctions will be lifted. There's none of that on the horizon. Best case scenario for Iran, I don't even know what that is. It's certainly not uh, going to see the sanctions lifted in a year or two. Um, you know, absolute best case scenario for Iran is they make the kind of trouble they've been making uh, recently in the region. That causes the Europeans to step in and uh, maybe help them avert the sanctions, do more to help them avert the sanctions. Um, the, the Europeans haven't been uh, living up to their promises made early on last year about setting up an alternate mechanism for financing European-Iran trade. Um, that's what they're hoping for, but I don't see that happening in Europe. I don't see the Europeans moving in that direction at all. Um, so if you're an, an Iranian optimist, I don't even know what your, <laughs> what your uh, you know, dream is because there's just nothing on the horizon for them. That, that doesn't mean it's going to work out great for us because, again, I don't see the Iranians coming to the table. And if they don't come to the table, uh, their nuclear program is still the, the elephant in the room that hasn't been, hasn't been dealt with. So we have at the uh, maximum, maximal end of how Iran can respond to this uh, increased economic isolation from the United States, the development to either have a breakout capacity to have a nuclear we weapon or even maybe setting off a nuke if they're able to develop it somehow, being able to uh, get beyond the glaring eye of Western and Israeli intelligence services. But what options do the Iranians have in the asymmetrical realm to put pressure on the United States, on its proxies in the region, on its interests in the region, and other areas that may not go to uh, developing nuclear breakout capacity, but perhaps using fast boats to attack shipping in the Persian Gulf from the Straits of Hormuz, or maybe activating an Iranian cell in South America and trying to target an American embassy or one of our allies there. What options do the Iranians have to respond that are of a kinetic nature, but that um, I'm sure that would invite a U.S. proportional response but what, what do they have in their toolbox of being able to cause havoc, encouraging the U.S. to maybe back off from the sanctions, or with the hope of, of encouraging the U.S. to back off from implementing more sanctions? I, I think that's, that's an interesting question. Obviously, the Iranians have a lot of assets around the world. In the region, of course, we know they have Hezbollah in Lebanon, a multitude of uh, proxies in Iraq, uh, Yemen. Um, these are all countries, especially Iraq, where, the, where they can, they can – uh, certainly take actions that, that would erode American interests, even threaten American lives. Uh, overseas, uh, there's an enormous Shiite, uh, especially Lebanese Shiite diaspora around the world, uh, in Latin America, in uh, West Africa. Um, a number of European countries have had, had Hezbollah cells uncovered. Um, so in principle, the Iranians have, have an enormous capacity to uh, conduct terror, terror operations overseas, abroad. Uh, I don't anticipate that's what's, what's going to happen. I, th I, I think if any Iranian actions, certainly kinetic actions that threaten uh, American soldiers, threaten American lives, I think it's likely to happen in Iraq in part because it, it's, it's easier for them to plausibly deny involvement because um, just about everyone in Iraq has some relationship or another with the Iranians. So let's take three instances before we go to the break, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk to AJ about some of these issues. But we want to keep you in the studio. You have four tankers that are targeted in an Emirati port. You have a drone attack against a Saudi pipeline uh, running east to west from the country. And you have one sole 
lonely Katusha rocket that lands right next to the U.S. Embassy in Iraq in the Green Zone in Baghdad, what kind of messages are these to the United States and its allies? I, I think it's hard to decipher the specific message, but with the, with the Katusha hitting the Green Zone in Baghdad, I think it's there may, there may not be any message so much as the Iranians sort of telling their proxies, you know, we're not going to freak out if you let a missile slip. Um, and, you know, the, the Iranians have a way of, of letting their proxies know, okay, you don't have to be as responsible as, as you normally are uh, in, in targeting people you don't like. Um, so we could, we could see more of that. Um, certainly there's no shortage of rockets in Iraq. Um, I think it, it's, 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 really, it's, it's really hard to see the Iranians trying to deal with the U.S. by proxy in Lebanon. Um, so Iraq is, is really where I, th- I, th- I think we'd see. Right. They, they had their round 40 years ago with the bombing of the U.S. Marine Right. Barracks and also the uh, U.S. Embassy there. But Gary, we're going to get back to you with some of these questions and uh, focus on a larger part of the region after these messages. This is the great. Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. I'm joined by Gary Gamble in the studio, and now we have our next guest, A.J. Cachetta, a principal lecturer at the Rochester Institute of Technology, where he teaches English and political science. But the reason why we have him on is because he is also a fellow at the Middle East Forum and our Campus Watch project. A.J. holds a Ph.D. from NYU, where he studied the effects of the French Revolution and reign of terror on British society. After 9-11, he began focusing on the rhetoric of radical Islamists and on Western academic narratives explaining Islamist terrorism. AJ, like I said beforehand, is a fellow at MEF. AJ, welcome to the program. Thank you, Greg. And uh, we have Gary here, too. So this is sort of the uh, trifecta of Middle East analysis on Philadelphia here in the morning. And AJ. Very good. Good to be with you. Yeah, no, 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 no problem. So AJ, I understand that you just recently wrote a piece on Al-Qaeda and its reemergence. Can you get a, give us a little bit more detail on what you were uh, covering? Well, um, the, the, the thing I'm focused on at the moment is this uh, current release of two 
pretty prominent al-Qaeda operatives. Uh, first was Najibullah Zazi, who was an al-Qaeda operative who trained in Pakistan in 2008. Uh, he was arrested in 2009 as part of an al-Qaeda cell that was planning suicide bombings in the subway system in New York City. And then in February of 2010, he pleaded guilty, uh, conspiring to use weapons of mass destruction, commit murder in a foreign country, providing material support to a terrorist organization, etc. Uh, Eric Holder called him, uh, Obama, uh, President Obama's attorney general, called him one of the most serious terrorist threats to our nation since September 11th. And then earlier this month, uh, news came out that he was going to be released after serving 10 years. He, uh, he cooperated, apparently. He um, gave lots of evidence against his fellow co-conspirators, even against his own father. So I understand, just for a second, on Najibullah, that this is a guy who grew up in Pakistan's tribal regions. He, he makes it to the United States when he's 14 years old. And then he decides to have one summer where he goes back, he joins an al-Qaeda camp, he gets training in explosives and weapons and uh, camouflage and being able to subvert himself. He comes back to the U.S. and he starts planning an attack, like you said beforehand, on the New York subway system. He's caught. He's rounded up in a raid. And then instead of being sentenced, I mean, they charged him in, in, in that uh, year that he was caught. But instead of actually... They, they charged him with enough things that they could have put him away. I think it was for six lifetimes. Correct. Correct. So so th this is one bad hombre, as, you know, uh, as a president likes to say. Yes. But yes, indeed. he then delays his sentencing for 10 years. And he provides insights into how Al-Qaeda in Pakistan works. He actually is attributed to helping disrupt other plots. Arguably, one could say that American lives were saved because of his cooperation with the federal government. So That's where's true. Where, That's true. So, so where's the balance here between a jihadist uh, uh, gone wrong and, and being caught and then encouraging these guys to cooperate with the U.S.? I mean, I guess there wouldn't have been the possibility of implementing a capital sentence against him he, he he never actually partook in the crime he did have conspiracy to commit you know a, a murder against americans and using weapons of mass destruction blowing up the subway system is probably the one of the most horrible crimes that an american can imagine we saw what happened in madrid and in the uk but should there be a mechanism that federal authorities can use to incentivize potential jihadists and give them, let's say, the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel or the light that's not in a, in, a, in a dark cell that's in a supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, that they should be able to use to encourage active cooperation. Where, where's the middle ground here, if there is any? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the, I, I guess it boils down to, is it possible to rehabilitate uh, a, a jihadist, someone who is imbibed militant Islam, the same way you can rehabilitate, perhaps, a gang member or a thief, uh, and the record is not very good in this respect. Um, the uh, Saudis uh, have this program, the Mohammed bin Nayef Center for Counseling and Care, that is sometimes derisively called the Detox Program for Jihadists. A lot of uh, a lot of um, Al Qaeda members who were released from Guantanamo Bay were sent there under the Bush administration and the Obama administration. And the recidivism rate is kind of shocking. 
um, a number of uh, people. For instance, in 2014, 88 al-Qaeda operatives were arrested in Saudi Arabia, and of them, 59 were graduates of the Bin Nayef Center. Wow. Uh, uh, later that year, there were 77 arrested for an attack on a Saudi Shiite mosque, and of that 77, 44 of them were alumni of the Bin Nayef Center. So uh, if the Saudis can't convert jihadists, I don't know what chance we have of doing that. So I, I think I, I want to push back on that. We're not understanding yeah. the problem. I want to push back on that for a second. I think that sure. the way in which um, Saudi monitoring and rehabilitative services towards wannabe jihadis might be very different from the way in which the United States might be able to carry out these these programs. On I one hand, so. on, on, on one hand, I think that the Saudis are probably using religion as a way to forgive. They're probably offering counseling through not just uh, imams that are in the Saudi system, but also through governmental authorities that right. um, had previously, on one end of the spectrum, on the, on the extreme end of the spectrum, subjected these detainees to probably torture. They were probably uh, put in, in conditions of squalor. But sometimes you're able to get a little bit more with uh, honey than vinegar. So uh, that seems to be the case with Zazi. <laughs> uh, ironically, because of the evidence that he's given against Al Qaeda, he's he's now become a target of Al Qaeda, and there are some reports that he will spend the rest of his life in the federal witness relocation program. Right, and and so, he's also restricted. So we may not he, have to. Yeah. He he can't access the internet. He has to report his uh, whereabouts on a on a daily basis to uh, his parole officer. Uh, he'll probably have U.S. Marshals within, I don't know, half a mile of him at any given time. It I seems mean, that way. And the other thing is, is is that there's an expectation that he will cooperate with the U.S. government when called upon. So he's in I this... Think so. I, he, I think that is the uh, certainly the desire. Yeah, he's he's in this permanent uh, uh, status as a uh, as a confident... No, no, not a confidential informant, but as an informant. You know, he's basically on the U.S. government payroll for the rest of his life as an al-Qaeda expert, having yeah. been in the middle of it. But this is this is a very different case, I think, than the one of uh, John Walker Lind. Right. What has he done to get right? That? So, so Lind is a completely different story, um, and more than the events themselves, which are significant, I think it's Lind's story, his his narrative, that sets him apart and that makes him kind of more of a danger than Zazi. Uh, he was a young American kid from a wealthy family, rejected America, embraced Islam. He's a convert to Islam. Uh, at age 12, reportedly, he watched the movie Malcolm X, converted to Islam at age 16, changed his name to Suleiman al-Lind, and then he moved to Yemen, and then eventually on to Pakistan, where he joined the Taliban, trained with the Al-Farouk camp in Kandahar, where he met Osama bin Laden, who thanked him for joining the jihad, uh, he was deployed to the front lines post-9-11 and captured in Kunduz in 2001. And he was part of the prison uprising uh, at the Al-Kanji Fort where, outside of Majari Sharif, where the first death in the global war on terror... Right, Johnny Spann. ...declared Johnny Spann happened. And uh, Spann actually interviewed... Lind and the speculation is that Lind knew that there was a, a, a prison uprising being prepared, and he didn't tell Lind that. So certainly, Sp he didn't tell Span that. Certainly, Span's parents think that he should not be let out of jail. Uh, he was 
he was uh, accused um, by by um, uh, who was the attorney general at the time, John Ashcroft, uh, accused him of uh, all kinds of things and said he could spend three lifetimes in jail. He could, um, you know, they were throwing the book at him, essentially. And then Lynn lawyered up, and uh, within a couple of months, uh, he was offered this pretty sweet plea deal, 20 years in prison. And now he's getting out almost three years early on good behavior with zero evidence that he's actually been acting under good behavior. So let's let's look at the moral question beyond the just the, the yeah, beyond just the judicial questions associated with this. Yes, the U.S. system works. The government offers you a plea, you take it. Within mm-hmm. the U.S. penal system, there's the ability to get credit for good behavior. I think every convict should be able to be afforded that right. But the, the question is, why was he allowed to plea down? And, that that's uh, that's the, something we, we we can't rehash from 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 20 years ago. But what we can ask is under American law, if a detainee, or, or let's say, I guess he was treated and afforded the rights of an American citizen, but since Lind was caught and captured after the Mazari Sharif uprising and put in jail, we have had other Americans, for instance, Anwar al-Awaki, who was right. defined as an enemy combatant. And we know what happened to him at the end of a Reaper drone in Yemen. Yes, we do. But... If there is an assessment that Lind is still a threat to the United States, that not, that's not being a question of justice. He served his sentence according to what he got from the U.S. Uh, uh, judiciary, and he, he served it faithfully. He had good behavior. I'm not going to question the federal government insofar as saying that their effort to, to punish this individual under the uh, deal that he was given back in 2002 was, was just or unjust. We can you know relitigate that at a different time. But if there is a uh, necessity here to be able to look if he's still a threat, uh, Gary, do you think that it's okay after this guy served his term that we can now say, all right, he served his prison sentence, but if national security authorities think he's a threat, send him to Guantanamo, put him in the U.S. Navy brig in Charleston, uh, put severe conditions on his parole, is there anything that you think that is uh, relevant there? If there was a reason to believe uh, that he's uh, planning an act of return to terrorism, I, th- I think the fact that he has the ideological, the Islamist ideological views that he has, and apparently he still has them, um, right. I think that alone is not enough to continue his, his detention. But certainly it's enough to keep him under surveillance. I, I understand he's moving to Ireland, which has given him citizenship. Um, uh, he he was granted Irish citizenship in 2013 <laughs> because of his maternal grandmother. Mm-hmm. So the question is whether he will be allowed to actually travel to Ireland. Certainly the U.S. government can withhold a passport privilege from him so that he can't travel. Right. I'm well, sure I mean, we, have, we, have a, we, yeah, we have another American citizen that was a, uh, a citizen of another country, Jonathan Pollard who was convicted of espionage and served a 30-plus year sentence for trying to take American naval secrets and giving it to the Israelis. The terms of his parole don't allow him to go outside of a mile of his house. He can't do media interviews. He's still very much under the foot of the uh, U.S. Uh, prison service. So so I don't think that allowing him to travel to Ireland would be allowed. If that was the case, wow, I can't imagine that uh, you know being able to settle in Dublin after having uh, participated 
or, or, or having known that a CIA officer was going to get killed in a planned uprising 20 years ago, that definitely would be a miscarriage of justice. I think so, too. Although some people think it's not a big deal and he served his time, he should be able to go. Um, uh, the... the the, the notion of, of, again, like I say, his story, uh, the, the, I think people, other jihadists could be attracted to him because of his story. The, you know, the young kid from America who rejects America. Uh, think of how many people followed Anwar al-Awlaki and um, how much of that was because of his story. So uh, Lind may not be an operational threat, but I believe he is definitely a propagandistic and recruiting threat. I, I would just add that, that I, I think the mistake that was made with Lind was made when he was sentenced. Uh, he, he shouldn't have, well, it, two mistakes. He shouldn't have been tried in the criminal justice system uh, because Correct. he was I believe an enemy I'm combatant. with you there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he shouldn't have been given such a lenient sentence, which included the possibility of parole, as I understand it. All so that, with, ha- without I, uh, going back and relitigating, as Greg said, uh, th- right. this was the well, very first case where the government was defending itself against harsh interrogation tactics. Right. And, um, and, you know, Lynn's lawyer, uh, his first lawyer, who, by the way, appears to have broken off with him because of some of the things he was up to a decade ago, some of his poetry and his refusal to denounce militant Islam. But uh, they they um, they portrayed him like a like a victim. Uh, they said he was denied medical attention. He was bruised. He was beaten. Meanwhile, he had just come off a battlefield. He was one of uh, I think eighty two or eighty three of five hundred prisoners who lived. So to, expecting him to come out of that completely unscathed is kind of ridiculous. AJ, we're but, gonna uh, his lawyer played it up well. AJ, we have to go to a break. But will you stay with us? Sure, I will. All right, after these messages, A.J. Cachetta and Gary Gamble return. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk. I'm joined in studio by Gary Gamble and on the line with AJ Cachetta, Middle East Forum Fellows, the previous being an editor, the latter being a member of our fellowship program. We've been speaking this morning 
about the rights afforded to convicted terrorists, John Walker Lind and his, uh, I, I don't want to call it his junior colleague in Al-Qaeda, but also uh, uh, Mr. Zazi, who has been cooperating with the U.S. government for the past 10 years and is now on parole. But AJ and Gary, I want to take these two cases as a way to expand our conversation and look at those detainees, those enemy combatants that are still in U.S. custody, not in the federal system, being afforded the rights either of American citizens or the protections that a, an accused uh, uh, a terrorist or, or an individual accused of committing uh, terrorism offenses has within the U.S. system here in country. But what's going on right now with the status of the likes of uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, of uh, Ramzi bin Youssef, of other, or sorry, uh, Ramzi bin Shalbi, Ramzi Youssef's in American jail right now, uh, down in Guantanamo Bay and also in other uh, U.S. detention facilities overseas that are not within U.S. territory itself. What protections are being afforded to them? Do they have the possibility of getting out on parole? I don't even think that there's a trial that's going on yet. No, it all kind of stopped when um, Barack Obama was elected. Um, he put everything on hold, and uh, there's there's really nothing happening down there. People being held. There's, the Red Cross is involved, and I know that uh, they are advocating for the rights of these enemy combatants, but I don't think there's anything going on at all. So one of the stories that I uh, read that was in the Defense One News Agency, it was about a month ago, was about how Guantanamo Bay is becoming a nursing home for its aging right. terrorism suspects. They're now moving geriatric facilities there. They are um, trying to find ways to, to even offer palliative care to some people, all on the U.S. taxpayer's dime. So yeah. we, we are opening up the uh, old age home for Al-Qaeda, uh, and I, I don't understand why there's this... Uh, lack of action. I mean, we have a new president. There, there, there was the uh, initiative of Barack Obama to close down Guantanamo Bay in the early years or the early months of his administration. And that was largely voted down by a supermajority of both the House and the Senate, which at that time were controlled by Democrats. This is before the Republican hey, even, takeover even in, in 2010. York, I mean, Chuck, Chuck, Chuck Schumer was violently opposed to it because it was going to uh, be a trial in lower Manhattan, and he didn't want that. Right, right. So, so they've been in this limbo status during the Obama years. Trump is in uh, office now. We know what his opinion is towards uh, alleged uh, uh, offenders of U.S. terrorism offenses and statutes. How come there hasn't been any traction? I mean, I, I asked this to you beforehand, but it would seem as if, though, with a new president, there could be a new policy through how the uh, U.S. military justice system could be applied to them. But I, I just don't understand. We're now three years into Trump, two and a half years into Trump. Uh, Gary, do you have any take on this? Uh, not, not particularly. I'm not, I'm not, not familiar with the Trump administration's policy. I wish there was an answer. I mean, what, why, why aren't the, uh, why haven't the tribunal started again? So let me let me give uh, 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 an idea, a novel policy idea, and a way in which we could deal with these folks without actually having to um, worry about the potential for uh, claims of, of the United States having uh, tortured or using uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, uh, abrogating the possibility of a mistrial, or uh, of the individual actually being released from the U.S. system because a military judge, or even if it was appealed to the Supreme Court, that the uh, information that these arch terrorists gave to the um, to the U.S. authorities under a certain amount of tension in these black sites, Thailand, uh, 
Egypt, Poland, other areas where they were accused of having been. What if we just take these guys and ship them to a third-party country, not through a process of rendition to get more information through interrogation, but a process of judicial rendition where we hold the trial, let's say, I don't know, Israel or in Saudi Arabia. We have countries like Spain and the United Kingdom that claim that they have universal jurisdiction over uh, human rights offenses and war crimes, you know. If you have an Israeli soldier who's transiting through Madrid and he's going to go on his post-army vacation in South America, there's a chance that if he was alleged by one of these U.S. UN special reporters for Palestinian rights and that his name came up in an, in an interrogation and the Spanish judicial authorities, who are independent of the government, by the way, and in Spain, a judge also acts as a prosecutor, same system in Italy, was to get a complaint from a, uh, from a human rights organization, which I actually think is, in most cases, just an anti-Israel organization. That soldier could be stopped in a Spanish airport, arrested, and tried for crimes that he allegedly committed in Israel or in the West Bank or in Gaza. Let's take the same logic, apply universal jurisdiction to an Israeli court, an Egyptian court, a Saudi court, and just say, you know what? Our system's not working. We're going to ship them off and try them for the crimes they committed against America in a third state. What do you guys think? That's an interesting idea, but you definitely will find uh, pushback against that. Uh, recall the case of the Chinese, the Uyghurs, um, who were al-Qaeda members. There were um, almost a dozen of them in Guantanamo Bay, and uh, the call was to send them back to China, but everyone knew that they would be executed if they went back to China. So they ended up, I think some are still there, and some were sent to the Bahamas or Bermuda or somewhere in the Caribbean uh, at about a million dollars each. So if I'm a Uyghur, I, I'm going to look at a, a permanent Caribbean vacation if I participate in terrorism offenses against the United States. As, as long as the U.S. decides that it is the morally correct thing to do not to send you back to China, where you will likely be summarily executed. Yeah, I, I do think that there are some uh, middle-of-the-road solutions here, like uh, sending them off to, uh, I don't know, Morocco or to Israel. I know Morocco right, has There the are death better count. choices than, than China. Right, sure. right. And, and we're not talking about this, uh, you know, Faustian bargain. Well, I still but think the, the ACLU and the American Bar Association, they're still going to push back in the same way. I, I think it's a, a tough political call. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, but rather than letting them rot at the uh, Al-Qaeda aging facility in Guantanamo, I think that it's time that we have to at least try something. Let's go through the judicial gambit, get to the Supreme Court. There's a majority right now that I think would allow for the U.S. to exercise sovereignty over those it has in custody. Uh, Gary, what do you think? But I think in principle it's, it's great if the countries of origin will take care of imprisoning uh, convicted you know, global jihadist operatives that come into our custody. The problem, though, and, and I would add that we have a bunch of these in, in Syria right now, hundreds and hundreds of, of uh, mainly foreign uh, ISIS fighters, um, and countries are dealing with the question of what to do with them right now. Like, you know, the, the, the problem with letting you know, the Syrian government put them in prison or, or letting local governments do is they cut deals with jihadists all the time. Weeks after the beginning of the 2011 uh, Arab Spring uprising in Syria, the Syrian government released all the jihadists from its prisons. They were thinking, okay, we'll divide the opposition by, by sending well, We saw how that worked out for them. But the point is, you, you have this all the time, where uh, local governments in Muslim countries cut deals and, and, and have mass releases of, of, of jihadist prisoners. You know, the one thing about Guantanamo is I'm pretty sure no one's going to release Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as long as he's 
sitting there. So, you know, the whatever the cost to taxpayer is, unless someone comes up with a guaranteed alternative, guaranteed legal alternative <laughs> to making sure that it doesn't make trouble again, um, I, I think Guantanamo is something we're going to have around for a while. So maybe until the uh, death of the last alleged al-Qaeda mastermind in U.S. custody. They're that getting great health care, so it's going to be many years. <laughs> that, that facility is going to be open for a long time to come. I mean, I, I don't know what would happen if we had a president like Bernie Sanders or, um, you know, let's, let's look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, 20 years from now. God forbid if she mm-hmm. runs for office. Uh, not offering a political opinion here, just my own personal opinion. But, uh, yeah, I, I uh, understand. Uh, AJ, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, and uh, we're going to offer some final thoughts right now. Uh, Gary, I, I think that we had a fascinating conversation. We first started focusing on Iran and American tensions. We did a little bit of our news brief. And then we really got into the minutia of what it's like for the U.S. to hold on to convicted terrorists and alleged terrorists. But I think that one of the things that Americans have to focus on today is if we do get into another conflict with Iran, there will not just be the kinetic warfare that takes place between American carriers and bombers launching strikes against Iranian nuclear targets and military targets, but there are also the after effects of war, whether it be the impact on our economy, the uh, ability to hold detainees, the ability to hold land and occupation, whatever it will be. And we often find ourselves only focusing on the binary option of do we bomb or do we not bomb? But it's important for uh, pundits and for people who are offering their opinion in the public domain to ask individuals to think about all the consequences of military action beyond just the initial damage assessment that takes place. And I'd really like to see some of our guys write about this in the near future. Um, Prisoner dilemmas, uh, the ability to negotiate, the ability to maybe use a subversive means of trying to solve conflicts rather than overt means. And at the end of the day, if the U.S. is considering action in Iran, we have to consider the after-action reports that will be coming in as well. We didn't think about it in Iraq. We didn't think about it in Afghanistan. Let's not have a knee-jerk attack against the mullahs in Tehran. I'm Greg Roman, the host of this show. We were joined by AJ Cachetta and Gary Gamble, Middle East Forum fellows, and Gary, the editor of Middle East Forum Online. Lisa Barbunas, our director of communications, and Delaney Janchek, our production assistant. That's all for this week. We'll be joining you live from Philadelphia after Memorial Day. Have a great long weekend. Signing off.